Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. So glad you are here for the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. And Jim, before we get into our good martini, I know you're shocked. I know you're still trying to gather your thoughts because you never knew this was coming. But apparently now that all the other Democrats are out of the race, except for Irving Schmidlap, uh, Barack Obama <laughs> feels comfortable now actually backing the guy who was his vice president for eight years. I'm sure this will be a dynamic game changer, especially when the country has nothing else to focus on. Yeah, I, I saw people reacting to that on Twitter right before we uh, logged on to chat, Greg. And I'm sitting there thinking, like, isn't this kind of a middle finger to Biden? First of all, it's meaningless, right? Of course, you know. But like, you know, this was a there was a point in there where it was all hands on deck for whether you want to characterize it as the Democratic Party establishment or the centrists or the you know the non-socialist wing, the folks who weren't on there with and Klobuchar jumped out and Buttigieg jumped out and you know, this is like saving Private Ryan for the. Uh, <laughs> for the Democratic establishment. And Barack Obama just wasn't willing to lift a finger. He didn't do anything. So uh, rather revealing, I think. And, and my understanding is, I, I have not watched the video, but it sounds like the um, endorsement is not exactly overflowing with warmth and uh, uh, deep personal uh, sentiment. So uh, interesting. When push came to shove, Barack Obama was not there for Joe Biden. It's almost like Barack Obama is all about Barack Obama. I could be mm. wrong. Could yeah. be wrong, but I don't think I am. All right, let's go on to our good martini now, Jim. And uh, yesterday's coronavirus briefing, which went on a very long time, over two hours, uh, one of the big uh, points of conversation, and we'll get to another one in the bad martini, but uh, one of the big points was uh, that Dr. Anthony Fauci in recent days had suggested that there had been some pushback and that earlier mitigation might have had greater effect in stopping the spread of coronavirus in this country. And of course, the media ran with that and suggested that, oh, he got resistance from Trump or from Trump's inner circle. And because of that, we had every just listened to Dr. Fauci from the get go. This could have all been a lot better. So Fauci gets up there and says in no uncertain terms, look, the first time I ever went into his office with Dr. Burks was to ask for the 15 days of mitigation. He agreed. The next time I went in to ask for anything was to extend it for another 30 days. He agreed. And then he uh, was challenged on the timing of uh, some of this. And then he talked about travel bans and other things. They've been in agreement. And it ultimately ended with Fauci in a confrontation with the press. The first and only time that I went in and said we should do mitigation strongly, the response was, yes, we'll do it. And what did he do? Is that the travel restrictions? No. Uh, the travel restriction is separate. That was whether or not we wanted to go into a mitigation stage of 15 days of mitigation. The travel was another recommendation. When we went in and said we probably should be doing that, and the answer was yes. And then another time was we should do it with Europe. And the answer was yes. And the next time we should do it with the UK. And the answer was yes. In this interview, you said there was pushback. Yeah. Where did that pushback come no, from? No, it wasn't. That was the wrong choice of words. You know what it was when people discuss, not necessarily in front of the president, when people discuss, they say, well, you know, this is going to have maybe a harmful effect on this or on that. So it was a poor choice of words. There wasn't anybody saying, no, you shouldn't do that. Are you doing this voluntarily or did no, the president No, I'm doing it. I, uh, 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 Everything I do is voluntarily, please. Don't even imply that. 
And so, Jim, uh, you know, he couldn't have been more clear about the fact that uh, while there may have been some spirited conversations along the way, ultimately they agreed on the right policy to move forward. And the only uh, response from the press corps at this point can be, are you doing this voluntarily? And Fauci's response and the glare that you obviously can't get from that clip was, yes, stop doing this. It's not helping anybody. Good for him. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a manifestation of the press's belief that all stories ultimately revolve around uh, Donald Trump, that, that they prefer preference the media has for stories about strong personalities, these stories, uh, the preference for stories that are sort of binary. My favorite example of this was Edward Snowden, hero or traitor, as if there was no way that you could either, you know, vehemently disagree with what he did, but have concerns about what the NSA was doing or any sort of nuance or that. It had to be not only be black and white. It also, the story couldn't be about what the NSA was doing. The story had to be about him. And what did you think of him? Um, most of the big news items that have come down the pike in the era of the Trump administration have come down to what do you think of President Trump? And sometimes the issues are bigger than that. And this is one of them. Uh, what's more, Maybe listeners out there love Donald Trump. Maybe they hate him. Maybe they, most of our listeners like him at minimum or prefer him to the Democrats. Um, You know, maybe you love Anthony Fauci. Maybe you don't like him. But, you know, as Rumsfeld said about you go to war with the army you have, we are entering this pandemic crisis with the government leadership that we have. We're not going to impeach the president again. We're not going to replace the president, presuming, you know, he stays healthy throughout uh, throughout this pandemic. So this is the president we've got. Dr. Fauci is the head of infectious diseases over at NIH that we've got. Um, we had these. These are the crew, these are the people. Azar is the person at HHS. It is unlikely we are going to be making many changes to the management of the people who are handling this crisis anytime soon. There is a reason people say you shouldn't try to change horses in the middle of the stream. So we kind of have to take it on faith that there are presidents uh, that are our leadership are making the best decisions they can. The good news is perhaps foreshadowing our, our next martini. We have multiple leaders. We have, in addition to the president and the federal uh, coronavirus response panel, uh, the people who are going out giving the daily briefings, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Burks. We've got the governors. We have our local health experts. We have our local uh, you know, mayors. We have our state health officials. Everybody's responding to this. And when somebody, if, if at some point the president comes out and gives some sort of piece of advice that is completely contrary to what everybody else is saying, then we can worry. If you believe that Anthony Fauci is the terrific guy that he is, and by the way, I pretty much do, I think that if the president says, I want to do something that's very bad, (laughs) I want to do something that Fauci believes is going to endanger the lives of many Americans, I believe Fauci, as you said, will have those heating conversations. And if Fauci loses that argument, he's probably going to say, Mr. President, I resign. By the way, let's keep my point. As brilliant as Fauci is, Fauci has been very open about the fact that he's not an economist and his whole concern is, you know, the health of Americans. He is a doctor. He is a health guy. Every day he wakes up and he looks at this virus issue of, okay, what is the best set of decisions we can make? What are the best policies we can enact to save as many lives as possible? And I'm glad he's there. That's his job. The president has a slightly different job. The president does have to account for the economy. There are risks to people's health if you keep them locked up in their houses uh, for an extended period of time. Uh, This is a country that does have to stand for certain values, and we can't become like China, welding the doors of the infected to ensure that they don't come out. Um, We have to account, okay, 
the question would then be, how can we open up our economy? How can we do it safely? How can we do it as widely as possible? These are complicated issues, and Fauci is an expert on one aspect of this, but not all the other aspects. So it's not surprising the two would disagree every now and then. We have to trust Fauci. We have to trust the president. We have to trust all the people around them. This doesn't mean they're impossible to make the bad decision at some point. But for now, we just have to assume that Fauci is not going to sign on on any type of idea that he thinks is bad and will risk millions of Americans. And every day the media obsesses on this and every day that the media focuses on, uh, either you can see it as pouring gasoline on a fire or maybe it's more accurately uh, pouring gasoline and trying to get some sort of spark going about a difference between Fauci and Trump. Um, is it one, it's a waste of energy, it's a waste of time, and I think it's just a, a waste of focus. It's a waste of, of attention, what we need to be thinking about at this moment. I think overall, this is our good martini, but I think overall the, the response of how many people in our political arena, particularly in the media, have seen this as yet another political fight to have when the stakes are so much higher uh, Greg, I find one of the most deeply frustrating aspects of uh, of this entire pandemic. Yeah, it makes me think of Jim Acosta, who I believe asked the exact same question at several consecutive briefings. Basically, what are the mistakes you've made that uh, made this worse than it could have been? And it's led some people to wonder, Jim, uh, whether it's time to to bench the political normal White House correspondents and put health reporters in there since that's what the briefing is uh, essentially about. You've been in the media a long time. Is that the right move or not? I love to. I would make an observation that since this pandemic became really bad in you know early to mid March, I haven't written that much about politics. There are other stuff going on there. You know, every now and then I've dipped in. We talked about, about Sanders and the Martini a moment ago. Um, the effect, you know, the, the Democratic primary more or less ended uh, as the pandemic took center stage. But by and large, the usual red versus blue, Republican versus Democrat, left versus right fights just aren't the most important thing going on in our lives right now. And this has kind of scrambled some of the lines, by the way, of uh, some Republican governors and some, some have enacted some of the more uh, restrictive things and some, you know, Democrats are chafing at these sorts of restrictions. I, this is not, you know, the traditional left versus right issues. And so there's a part of this like, guys, you know, besides the fact that there's so much, the, the White House, I, I have no idea what it's like to work on the White House beat these days. Maybe it's more boring than ever. Uh, maybe the, the briefings make it more interesting and more exciting. I don't, you know, I, I do think, though, that the, well, we've caught the president in a statement that's not quite accurate. I just don't have as much interest in that right now because I just, we got bigger fish to fry. That being said, as we, <laughs> as we a, good, our, a good segue to our next martini. Yes. Yeah. So uh, yesterday, the president was talking about, and, and Jim just mentioned this as well, he's got a, a job that's different than Anthony Fauci. He's got the economy and other things to worry about as well. And the question of when to reopen, whether in stages or, or nationally, uh, is a major concern right now. And so he was trying to make the case that it's his decision, one that he's taking very seriously, says it's the biggest decision in his life, but he thinks it's essentially his decision nationwide on when to reopen. And a lot of people from a Federalist perspective would disagree with that, correctly, I would say. Uh, but here's uh, Peter Alexander in NBC News, one of Trump's favorites, of course, explaining this uh, controversy in his report, I believe, from the Today Show this morning. President Trump now declaring that he is the sole power who gets to determine when and how states reopen, even as governors in some of the hardest hit states make plans of their own. When somebody's the president of the United States, the authority is total. And that's the way it's got to be. And the governors know that. 
In fact, the Constitution gives that power to the states. And experts say the president does not have the authority to direct governors, mayors, or other local officials to lift their emergency orders. So, Jim, it is uh, correct for Alexander to say that the president is wrong and suggesting that his power is absolute. The Constitution is very clear about that. I'm also really excited that the liberal media has discovered the 10th Amendment, which means powers uh, not specifically given to the federal government belong to the states. That would have been really nice when we were talking about Obamacare and some other big government power grabs over the years. Yeah, I mean, quite a few folks have noticed the strange contradiction in the level of argument we've seen from, uh, I said, probably the Washington White House press corps most particularly. This idea of why hasn't the president shut down the country? Why are they allowing these 12 states, which by the way, all have the usual voluntary restrictions in place. The schools are shut down in 80, you know, uh, 80% of the counties in this country have one uh, form of, of lockdown or another. Um, everybody else is being told to shelter in place. Nobody's doing big events anymore, even in the states that haven't done this. It's not like life is going on as normal and you're still having big gatherings and there's great risk of this. You know, the only question is, have you, you know, have your, has your state made this mandatory or, have, you know, or they, they made this a matter of recommendations. But there was this argument that somehow these 12 states were going to get everybody killed and they're crazy and they're reckless. And by golly, the president needs to step in and do this. So now the president has begun <laughs> saying sadly constitutionally inaccurate statements about having total power. Greg, but am I correct that this is uh, the biggest statement? Who was the uh, White House? Was it White House Chief of Staff? Who was it uh, when Reagan was shot? It was Al Haggie, the Secretary of State. Thank you, Secretary of State. I am in. He said, "I am in command here. I am in charge here." Or something. It was something yeah, along those Vice lines. President Bush was coming back to the White House from Texas, and so he says, "I'm in charge here," which was yeah. not even correct in the order. But what he meant was the White House. You know, he meant that he was in charge of the. Uh, my understanding is he kind of got misinterpreted, but it definitely sounded, you know, like I, you know, <laughs> I seize the flag. I've grabbed the crown. <laughs> you know, the scepter of power is mine. You know, um, but so the president says this. It's wrong. Um, the president does have different powers in a uh, declaration of an emergency or something like this. But no, uh, Trump gets into this. And Trump, lo- you know, here's the thing. I don't know if Trump is physiologically capable of admitting that he doesn't have the power to do something. I, I think it's just too wrapped up in his ego and the way he sees himself. If you say, Mr. President, do you have the power to whatever the whatever follows in that sentence, Trump is going to say yes. He's not correct. It is bad. Now, I said in the last martini, I'm getting a little, you know, tired of everybody who wants to turn this into just another Trump story. This is a particularly bad statement by the president. Um, it is not an accurate depiction. As I was describing to somebody last night, Greg, you know, back in, in the 1770s, we fought a war against King George because he wanted to share power with Parliament. And we said no. We believe that all the power should be in one part of the government. We don't believe in checks and balances. We don't believe in uh, separation of power. <laughs> you know, that's, the, that's the exact opposite of everything. So, um, but you know, when Trump gets rolling in these in these press conferences, of course he's going to make these kind of assumptions. And you know, Trump wants to believe that he has all the power and stuff like that. It's it, you know, and I guess there's a part that just feels like once we get down these rabbit holes, every moment we're we're focusing on these sorts of rabbit holes are moments we're not the people in charge and the national media and everybody else are not focusing on the real problem, which is this virus, which we're trying to get a hold on. And that so far, it looks like we've flattened the curve some and things looking better, but uh, we'll see. This is a bit of a 
odd departure here before we get to our crazy martini, but did you see the Wall Street Journal argument today that it's really good that the 49ers blew their fourth quarter lead in the Super Bowl because then they didn't have a Super Bowl parade, which means that there wasn't as much chance for community spread. If you're a 49ers fan, I'm not sure you like that argument. <laughs> That's really looking for a, uh, a silver lining there. Let's also note that we haven't seen, you know, Kansas City uh, described as one of the devastated uh, uh, cities of all this. So I think at that point, yeah, was there some risk? You know, here's the thing. Um, you look at the numbers. It really looked like February was the, the serious point for New York City and places like that. And again, I think you're, you know, um, it, it's interesting because everyone figured, you know, San Francisco, major travel hub, major city, big Chinatown, people figured, oh, this would be a really bad case. So far, you know, you and I are not usually in the business of, of giving a great deal of credit to the Golden State. California appears to be managing this fairly well. Yeah. And the West Coast cities, certainly none of the West Coast cities have not been hit nearly as bad as New York has. So, uh, you know, uh, good job. Good job, left coast. It's not, it's not something we say very often. All right, let's move on to our crazy martini now, Jim, and back to the issue that has been your stock and trade now for a few weeks here, and that is the uh, situation in China. They're lying, they're obfuscation, and now even going backwards a little bit here in time to see where the, the threat was already on the radar screen. Uh, you credit Josh Rogan over at the Washington Post for flagging this yesterday. He writes, Two years before the novel coronavirus pandemic upended the world, U.S. embassy officials visited a Chinese research facility in the city of Wuhan several times and sent two official warnings back to Washington about inadequate safety at the lab, which was conducting risky studies on coronaviruses from bats. The cables have fueled discussions inside the U.S. government about whether this or another Wuhan lab was the source of the virus, even though conclusive proof has yet to emerge. In January 2018, the U.S. Embassy in Beijing took the unusual step of repeatedly sending U.S. science diplomats to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. You probably haven't heard of them because they're not that great at basketball, but the Wuhan Institute of <laughs> Virology, which had in 2015 becomes China's first laboratory to achieve the highest level of international bioresearch safety. And the bottom line here is the U.S. officials that went there were not impressed with what they saw. They were very worried about the lax standards there, sent the cables back. And like Rogan says, we don't know that we can tie it back to this, but it's another sign that China was not doing the job it should have been. This is not a smoking gun. I do think we are getting closer and closer to this. And, and you know, first of all, all, all credit to Josh Rogan. This is probably one of the most important scoops we've seen in the uh, stories trying to figure out the origin of this coronavirus. It doesn't mean uh, that we are 100% certain of this. We may never have a smoking gun. We may never be able to determine with 100% certainty where this virus came from. Uh, what had me leaning in the direction that I am, uh, which is, let's just say, openness to the lab accident theory, uh, is that you have not one but two facilities in the city that are researching coronaviruses in bats. One is a level four biosafety uh, facility, which is the, the best in the best you can make. Uh, there's only one in the country. And the other one is the Wuhan Center for Disease Control, uh, which is either a bio, I think it's either two or three. Now, for what it's worth, the Rutgers University professor who uh, researches this a good deal, he contends they were doing that in parts of the lab that only would be considered biosafety level two. By the way, if you're wondering what kind of protections they do at each level of these labs, um, the opening scene of the film Outbreak. By and large, it's a bad film. 
Dustin Hoffman is not an action hero. Let's just get that out of the way. Um, but the opening couple minutes, uh, the camera kind of goes through uh, a set that is designed to look like Fort Detrick, Maryland. I'm pretty sure they didn't allow them to actually film inside. And they have people walking around, and you can see the, uh, the coverings, the masks, all the different stuff that they do to uh, protect themselves from the virus gets more intense each time they go through a doorway to a new level. Um, to kind of demonstrate that level four stuff is the single most dangerous stuff they deal with, the Ebola viruses and things like that. So you got two facilities in the city that are working on this. And now we know the U.S. State Department was worried about one of them, uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, because the idea that the personnel did not seem, they did not have a sufficient number of properly trained personnel to handle this stuff. And so the argument is, did this virus arrive in Wuhan? because of uh, someone, but, but in case anyone's wondering, there's no evidence this is bioengineered. Um, the idea that this was deliberately created or deliberately enhanced to be more uh, contagious, and just too many virologists, too many people who do this for a living say, no, if you did it, you'd see the fingerprints, so to speak. The, the DNA would show some evidence of somebody tampering with it. Um, they're just not seeing this. So this, is a, so this is a naturally occurring virus. The question is, is this a naturally occurring virus that came from one of the several hundred bats that were in the Wuhan Centers for Disease Control? Was this in one of the bats that was being used for study over the Wuhan Institute of Virology? Or was this, did this bat, uh, or supposedly, I guess, a pangolin, people, scientists are still a little bit of division about whether this had to jump from a, uh, could jump directly from bats to humans, or whether it had to go through a pangolin. If they can ever definitively prove that uh, SARS-CoV-2, which is the official name for it, I know we're just using the term COVID-19. COVID-19 is actually the name for the disease. Whenever I use COVID-19 for the virus, somebody tweet right saying, you don't know what you're talking about. So if you wonder why I'm very, you know, persnickety about which terms I'm using, that's why. If this virus found its way into humans in the city of Wuhan through th some third vector, now it's possible. It, uh, it would be an amazing coincidence, but it is possible. We do know there are wet markets there. We, you know, from the very beginning, the wet market, the Hunan seafood market was where the Chinese uh, government said was the most likely source. Now it's worth noting, not all of the early patients they could trace back to the market. Um, but, you know, we do know there are people who eat bats in markets. We haven't necessarily known the people who ate bats in this particular market or pangolins. But then again, this stuff is illegal. You're not supposed to be serving it and eating it. So... Uh, you know, the it's probably the sort of thing that people would not be openly discussing or eager to talk about, particularly when this may have been the cause of a giant global pandemic that's killing lots and lots of people. Um, you look at this, I think, you know, you, you, if you think of a scale, one side is all the evidence, everything, circumstantial evidence pointing towards a laboratory uh, escape or, or accidental infection of somebody in the laboratory. Um, perhaps the uh, removal of contagious material was not done properly. Um, I've even heard people speculating, and I don't know how plausible this is, but, you know, we talked about gutter, gutter oil, yes. the idea that people were reusing that. What if the sewers from the uh, either one of these labs had stuff that was contagious and then went into the sewers, people pick it up, they put it into the oil, they cook the food and people get it. That's, you know, not one of the more, um, maybe some people would say a far-fetched scenario, but that's not something we can completely rule out at this point. Um, at this point, we don't know precisely what this is. There are two things we know. The Chinese government lies a lot. And now we know people were worried about the safety conditions in these labs that were researching coronaviruses in bats. That's a, that's pretty significant there. Um, now, I think what's two things that's kind of crazy, this came, you know, two years ago. And I'm, I don't know about you, Greg, I'm really curious. I'm glad somebody decided to show this to Josh Rogan. I think this is a huge scoop. 
um, maybe even award-winning sort of thing. But um, so, so who's been sitting on this memo for the past couple of months? You know, like, I don't know about you, but the moment, hey, we've got a, we've got an outbreak of a virus that starts in bats, a coronavirus, you know, and in a city of Wuhan, the fact that, hey, didn't we write a memo saying that lab looks shoddy and it's safety measures? Didn't, is there somebody over there who was like, oh, like who, the people who wrote that, you know, the people at the embassy, how many people in the U.S. government are saying, oh, man, remember that memo? It's not like there's a shortage of people in Washington who want to jump out there and say, I told you so. So, uh, yeah, that should have come to somebody's uh, attention a little bit sooner. But and uh, I just want to put it in the, other, in the back of my mind. I periodically wonder if Tom Cotton had heard about this a while back. But anyway. Oh, that's that's certainly possible. I, I keep thinking of the, the moment in office space, Jim, because you mentioned all the things that all the Chinese did wrong here, you know, where they say, what is it that you'd say you do here? And to the, to the Chinese, I would say, what is it that you'd say you did well here? Because so far, there's not much. Yeah. By the way, I, in today's Morning Jolt, I lay out um, the things from the first SARS outbreak. And it's kind of interesting. We, we've seen people referring to it. I don't remember a heck of a lot about when this was going on. And one of the reasons I, I realized, this is so long ago, predates me at National Review, um, this was right around February, March 2003, when the U.S. was getting ready and ultimately did invade Iraq. Mm-hmm. So it's probably very likely that most of our national discussion was focused on that and the early days of the Iraq war and not paying attention to this virus, which, oh, by the way, also broke out in China. And I, I know this is going to shock you, Greg. I, you better probably want to sit down for this. <laughs> it turns out the Chinese government wasn't totally honest about that no. virus. And it didn't bother to, uh, it tried to hide it. It tried to cover it up. It lied about the extent of it. It lied how many people had it. And ultimately, they lied to the World Health Organization. But, you know, Greg, what are the odds of that, right? Well, they're nothing if not consistent. Jim, uh, I guess we'll leave it there for today. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Please subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a very kind review if you'd like to. We'd appreciate that. Also, you can get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. And tune in again on Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.